Great to have you with us today. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. We're starting our um, new Easter sermon series today, which will be this week, next week, and then Easter Sunday. Roll us down towards Easter. But before we get into that, can you put the first slide? Have you seen this before? In this picture, the question is, when you see pictures like this, they ask you, what do you see? What do you see? And you've got that and you think, depending what you're looking at, do you see two faces looking at straight at each other or do you see a kind of vase or an ornate cup or maybe a candlestick? Hands up who can see the candlestick or the ornate cup? Who can see the faces? Who can see both? Because they're just like that cool. Okay, fine. What about the next one? It is the same. Can we have the next one? There are three. There you go. This one, I love this one. What do you see? Do you see the rabbit or do you see the duck? Rabbit or duck? Who can see the rabbit? Who can see the duck? Who's just hardcore and can see both? Rabbit and duck. Okay, the last one. This one's, I think, the more tricky of the three. Can you put the, the next one up? This one. The choice is, do you see a kind of a beautiful younger lady turning away from you or do you see an older lady maybe with a kind of hood on or something facing you the nose the nose and the chin are the same for the two pictures who can see the lady the younger lady looking away who can see the um the older kind of lady with the the larger nose yeah you can see both he's just like fantastic there's there's oodles of them i spent ages on the internet looking for some of these the point of that is, what is it? Is it one or the other? Well, actually, they're the same. It's, just, it's one image. Depending on how you look at it, you see you do different things. What we're going to be looking at in our series over the next few weeks is, is looking at Jesus in the form of the lion and the lamb. And the question when we were talking to our kids about it, because they knew what was coming, it was like, well, what is he, a lion or a lamb? And the answer is really, well, yeah, he's both. Depending on how you look at him or what the context is, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And we talk about both of them. And what we're going to look at this week is we're going to particularly look at Jesus as the lion. Next week we're going to look at Jesus particularly as the lamb. And then our final one on Easter Sunday when we have our baptism, we'll bring them together and look at Jesus as the lion and the lamb and what that means for us. Our kids and our young people are joining with us with this in terms of what they're learning out there in kids' work and youth work today. So if you have kids uh, in our, our younger ages and in our youth work, talk to them today. They'll be making lions. I know the little ones will. The older ones and the youth, I know they've got lion bars out there. I don't know how that got in, but that was there's chocolate and their lion bars. But talk to them about what they've learned as Jesus as the lion. And we're going to start with, if you've got a Bible, can you go to Revelation chapter 5, please? I'm going to read a short, a short section from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Now, book of Revelation, right at the end of our Bibles... Revelation just means kind of unveiling. It was a, um, a big kind of vision was seen by the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the letters of John we find in our Bible. But right at the end of his life when he was an old man, he had this marvelous vision of God. And um, the, 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 the book of Revelation begins, chapter 1, with John sort of introducing himself. He's a prisoner. He's old, possibly in his 80s or 90s, this guy. But he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos, 
kind of doing hard labor, not a good uh, place to be. And the risen Jesus appears to him. And if you read a bit in chapter 1, the risen Jesus is quite incredible in his glory as he comes to John. And there's this incredible description of what he likes. And then uh, Jesus then speaks to John and says, I've got some messages for you to write down to seven of my churches, which were in the locality, Asia Minor, as it was known as that time. For us, it would be kind of modern-day Turkey. And he says, I want you to write down these messages to these seven churches, Laodicea and Sardis and Philadelphia and others. And so he writes them down. Then we get on to chapter 4, and John's vision moves on, and he gets a vision of heaven. And on heaven, there is a throne a great throne, and there was someone seated on that throne. Around him there are people worshipping creatures and, and elders kind of representing the, the creation and God's people worshipping this one on the throne. And the one on the throne is Jesus, of course. Um, and as we're going to pick it up at the beginning of chapter 5, when it's focusing in on the person sitting on this throne, glorified in heaven, our Lord Jesus, it says, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, big idea of today, where we're going. Jesus is the king, sorry, Jesus the king is the only one worthy to complete God's sovereign plan. Jesus the king is the only one worthy to complete God's sovereign plan. And we're going to look um, at three kind of parts that come out of this passage. The first one is the scroll. The scroll. If you have the scroll up, it says, oh, we've missed out some of mine. I'll have to read what it says to you. Remind you of that verse, because it's... Got cut off. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a skull written on within and back, sealed with seven seals. Okay, first thing. Who sits on a throne? A king. Kings sit on thrones or queens, I guess. Royalty. Those in power or authority. And for us, it's a king sitting on a throne. And this is someone who has huge power and authority. You don't sit on a throne any other way. You have to be someone with that power and authority. No, people like us, we don't get to sit on the thrones. People with great power and authority did that. And my question there is actually, let's just have a little think about how do you view Jesus? What's your view of Jesus? The world has got lots of different views of Jesus. They think about, you know, if you said to them, you know, what do you think about Jesus? You've got the, the, the extreme minority view, which is mainly poo-poo now. Say, so, well, he never existed. He was just a fictional character. But history tells us that can't be true. You have to deal with Jesus. Well, who is he? Good moral teacher. A guy who lived 2,000 years ago and lived a great kind of life and example of loving others, caring for others, self-sacrifice, etc., etc. Is he, is he like that? You know, did he have some good stuff to say? Is he someone who was about to come maybe a bit of a revolutionary for social change and we should follow his model and kind of change society and all that kind of stuff? What is he? Well, the Bible is quite clear in how it describes Jesus. He is a king. 
He is a king seated on his throne. He's the king. He's not just like an earthly king which has power and authority in a, a limited realm. We live in a united kingdom for the time being until it, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But for now, we have a kingdom and we have a queen who sits on the throne and her kind of limits of her power is that. A lot of it's ceremonial now, but it was very limited. The Bible describes Jesus as a king, but he's not just king kind of a part of the earth, a little bit of an area, or even the entire earth. He's actually the king of absolutely everything. The entire cosmos, if you will. Everything that our telescopes can see as far as it goes and beyond. And not only that, he's the king of what we can't see. The unseen realm, the spiritual heavenly realm. He is king and ruler over all things, this character is. And it says he's holding in his hand a scroll. But it's in his right hand. Right hand represents a power and authority. So he's got this scroll. It's in his right hand, which is the position of power and authority. So it's something really important. It's something he has authority over. And what does it say? What do we know about this scroll? Well, this scroll represents a plan. Skull represents a plan, the one sitting on the throne. And the scroll, if we look at what, you know, the image of the scroll, it actually dates back to the Old Testament. Some of the other apocalyptic literature, which is the star revelation, is um, written. Is also, you find it in Ezekiel, you also find it in the book of Daniel. And this image of the scroll comes up again and again. And so it kind of travels through the Bible. So what's this scroll the king is, is holding in his right hand, this great position? It's something important because the king's got it. And basically what it is is God's plan for human history. God's great plan of redemption. God's great plan of working out his purposes in the world. And if we think about the big story of the Bible... What what is God's plan for his people? What is God's plan for the cosmos? What is God's plan for everything? You can kind of sum it up in sort of four words if you wanted to break it down. What's God's big, you know, what's the Bible about, people might say. Well, they'll give you four words to kind of break it down. You've got creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. They're the four planks, if you will. Creation, fall, reconciliation, consummation. So we start at the beginning. We have creation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth. What do you say about it? It is good. Amazing. He makes everything. The stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and animals and the the, the mountains and the, the seas. Everything. And it teems with life. And this is good. And then he makes us. And we are very good. All right. We kind of, we're made as sort of the pinnacle of creation. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you think, really? Really? But we are. We're this pinnacle of creation made in the image of God. We're different to all the other animal and plant life. We kind of, we're above that. And in creation, everything's good for two chapters Everything is really good. Then you get Genesis chapter 3. So you've had Genesis 1 and 2. If the Bible stopped there, everything would be so much better. But we get Genesis chapter 3 comes in and we we get fall, which is the second part. What happens? Man rebels. Man says, in essence, stuff you, God. I want to be in charge. I don't want you to be king over everything. I want to take that position from you I want to be like you I want to be king I want to be in charge of my own destiny I want to be calling the shots and everything goes wrong sin shatters everything 
this rebellion we have against God. It breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with one another. Particularly between man and woman, it said there's enmity. You know, it's just like, oh. It breaks our relationship with creation, the created order. Suddenly work becomes hard. Everything goes wrong. Everything is just lost and broken at that point. And it's just terrible. And then we're only three chapters in there. Then we get from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through the Bible up to Revelation about 20. We have the whole section reconciliation, which is God's big plan to bring man back to himself. To reconcile what was broken. Two parties who are at odds. Mankind and, and God, and he said, I want to do something about that. I want to bring it back. And he takes a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to pick you out of all these people. You're a godless heathen, but I'm going to come to you as the king of heaven and earth. And I'm going to pick you, and through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Through your offspring. And then your descendants going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. And Abraham responds in faith, it says. We saw that in Hebrews, didn't he? He responded in faith. And Abraham has a son called Isaac, and Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. You'll have heard of one, Joseph. We preached through Joseph. And there's another one called Judah. We'll come back to him um, later. But he had 12 sons. They then go down into Egypt, multiply into the mighty nation, the nation of Israel. When you get to the book of Exodus, we get Moses. God raises up Moses because they're under Pharaoh's tyranny. And he says, go, let my people go, plagues, da-da-da-da. They come out of Egypt. Um, so they're now a people, but they don't have a place. And God has promised land. He promised that back to Abraham. And so then we get them going to the promised land. They mess up a lot, you know, 40 years in the wilderness, get it all wrong. The new generation, the Joshua, they go into the promised land. They take the promised land. They're now in God's people, in God's place. So I'm always giving them laws on how to live. But what we find out is they seem to get it wrong again and again and again and again. And then God says, I'm going to send you this kind of sacrificial system so you can come to me and you can deal with your sin and come before my holiness. They have the tabernacle. And when they get in the promised land, it becomes the temple. But it just, because of man's folly, man's sinfulness, and, and the way the system can't fully deal with it, you get the prophets come and say, one day someone's coming. One day someone's coming who's going to deal with it all and make everything right and reconcile man to God. And then we fast forward a few hundred years and we get who comes on the scene? Jesus. He comes and it's finally that the one has come. God has come to earth. I've come to deal with the problem. I've come to demonstrate my kingdom. This is what it's going to look like. I'll teach you what it's about. And then I'm going to inaugurate it by dying on the cross in your place for your sin. I'm going to rise from death victorious. And I'm going to have a new people on there from every tribe and people and nation. It's called the church. And you're going to go forth into the world and you're going to tell everyone about me and how they can get right with God. And then that's where we are now. We're with the church. And then you get to the very end, the last part of Revelation, which will be the consummation of all things. Revelation 21, 22, right at the end where we get um, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And God said, I will be with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. There will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. The old order has gone and everything has come together. And it will all be under one head, Christ. The entire cosmos will be renewed And that's what's going to happen. And that's God's great sovereign plan. That is what is written on this scroll. 
This is what? This is God's plans for the cosmos. And it comes up again and again and again through the New Testament. We read that God is going to redeem everything. And everything will come under his head. That everything will be under his feet. He will rule and reign in all areas. And we know from this plan, it's a complete plan. Nothing is left out of it. Because if we, read, if we look at the scroll, it's, it's got writing on the front and the back. Symbolizing its completeness is also sealed by a number of seals, which are seven. Seven is a biblical image for completeness, fullness, the number of God. When you read that and you read seven, you think there's something there about God, something divine, something completeness. So this seven represents it's his plan, it's God's plan, it's not man's plan, it's not our idea. It's all in God. He is the one in complete control of this. He is the one who has total authority all over this. There is nothing outside of his plan. You might be looking around and we see the newspapers and we read the stories and we think, What's going on with the world? There is terrorist attacks and there's wars. Have we triggered Article 50 yet? Has that happened? You know, that's happening. Things are going. Like, where is this going to go? We have another referendum up north. You know, what's happening with the world? There's a guy in charge across the Atlantic and you're like, really? You know, what, what's going on? But actually nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of his plan. It is complete, it is total, and it will run all over everything. So we have the scroll, but then we have a problem that comes after that. We go to verse 2. And that's the problem, is there's no one worthy. It says, and I saw a mighty angel, this is the Apostle John who's having this vision, proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls. Oh, we got it all up there. Worthy. So you've got this question. I don't know if you remember back to your childhood. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been caught red-handed? The sniggering means, yes, you have. You all have, haven't you? You know those moments where you're doing something you know you shouldn't do and you get caught. Someone comes up, a teacher, a parent, an authority figure kind of, you know, is there and you're just like absolutely caught dead to rights and you're just like, oh, crumbs. I know I'm guilty, they know I'm guilty, my, 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 the evidence of it is all around me. And what do you usually find yourself in that situation? Silent. There's almost there's nothing you can do. You know you are absolutely kippered. It's just like, uh, and now I have children, I observe it from the other side, which is much better, I want to point out, that when you catch them doing something... Did it, we had it yesterday. We had some friends around, and one of our we've got a tap in the back garden that's got a hose attached. And we tell the, basically the kids love just turning it on and just spraying the hose around. And we're like, no, you no, you only use a tap when we say because you know chaos ensues. And we were sitting in the house the other day, and I heard you could hear the noise of the water rushing out the tap, which is just outside on the back wall. And you kind of look out, and I knew which one of my two children it was because I just know does that. And as I, I shot off, off out of the kitchen table and I stuck my head around the corner and he was there and I opened the door and we locked eyes. It's like, and he just looked at me like with, with his bucket of water, just like totally like, I was like, you know what you shouldn't be doing. And he just looked at me and kind of almost hoping he would disappear, I think, or I would disappear or this moment we've moved on. And I've got him and I said, 
no to the tap. You just you don't get to play with the tap because, and he was just kind of and we, we you know sorry daddy eventually came out, but there was that silence when you've been caught. And what do we see in heaven here? It doesn't actually say it, but the implication. I think it's verse three. Yeah, three. You could sum up with that one word. It says, "No one." in heaven on earth or under earth was able, able to open the scroll or look in it so you've got God's sovereign plan his complete plan here that is good and it brings mankind back into relationship with God well then who who can open the scroll who can inaugurate that plan who can bring that about and the, the message goes out throughout the heavens and the earth who can do that and what's the response silence no one can. Why can no one do that? Because the Bible's really clear. We're all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't come into God's presence. We can't inaugurate God's plan. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority. We definitely don't have the holiness to approach God and take the scroll that's in his hand from what you see in the picture. The Bible very clearly describes us as sinners before a holy God. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans and Ephesians, it says we are by nature who we are, objects of wrath. All mankind, all of us, every single person ever born, we can't come into the presence of God. We can't live up to his holy standards. We can't even live up to our own, if we're honest. We set ourselves our own standards, we set ourselves resolutions, we set ourselves kind of, I won't do that again, I won't act like that, I, won't, I see that behavior over there and I'll never be like that. And then within days, weeks and months we have the same cruel thoughts, vicious ideas. Now we're quite polite in this society because obviously we're British and obviously we're a bit middle class sometimes and so it doesn't often come out but we all know what goes on inside. We all know what goes on in the thoughts of our hearts and the words, you know, the things going around your head. And we might be cool enough and, you know, Christian enough to not let it out. But we know it's all there. We know it's all there. And we have completely fallen short of God's glory. And so when it's like, when the, the, the message goes out from the angel, who's going to inaugurate this plan? There's just silence. Because all of us know, the creation knows, we can't do that. We're not holy. We're not righteous. We can't stand before a holy God and make demands of that. We fall, short, fall so far short of his standards. And then what's the response of that in the face of that? Weeping. And it doesn't even say weeping in my translation. Or weep loudly. I think some translations say bitterly. Have you ever had that with, seen that where the children have wept loudly at their, you know, have been caught at their sin? There's loud weeping. It's despair that actually you can't, we can't do anything about our situation. We're lost before God and there's nothing we can do about it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot bring this great plan of God to bring mankind back into relationship with him. We can't do anything about it. We're just lost and we're broken and the response is despair and weeping. And so, I don't know what it was like. What was it like when you became a Christian? Do you remember if you're a believer here today? Do you remember that moment? Because there's usually kind of two things going on in someone's heart as they're kind of processing what it means to become a Christian and um, responding to it. The first thing, which is really applicable to this, is a sense of your sin before a holy God. Your wretchedness before a holy God. Actually, goodness, 
everything, my thoughts, my words, my actions are impure before the great God of heaven and earth who sees everything. He sees all the things that go on in my head and go on in my heart that never come out. He knows about them. Even the things that I should have done that I haven't done. They call that the sins of omission. Where you think, I should have said something, I should have acted, but I refused not to. So there's even the flip side of actually not just things we've done, the things we haven't done that we should have done. And we have that sense of weight. I remember when I was a Korean Christian just being broken by that and actually thinking, God, why, why would you be interested in me? I have fallen so far short of your standards in so many different ways. The other thing that comes alongside it is the wonderful grace of God that lifts us up beside, beside that and saves us. But there is that element of actually we, before a holy God, our righteousness, Paul says, are like filthy rags, aren't they? They're just, there's nothing. We try and earn brownie points. We can't. So then where does that leave us? In, in the response of it, there's actually the angels saying, who can do it? No one. No one, there's no one to carry out God's plan. There's no one who can move this forward, which comes to our final part. Who does it come to? Jesus. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John is in anguish. John is like, What? This can't, nothing can bring this about. And suddenly there is the good news. A hero comes riding over the hills. They're always the best parts in movies, aren't they? When all hope is lost. And then someone rides in to save the day. One of my favorites is, um, you seen the Lord of the Rings film? Feels like, yeah, I've seen that. Haven't you? You've watched all three of them, extended versions as well, haven't you? There's a bit at the end in the, the final one, The Return of the King, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields before Minas Tirith and the, the forces of Mordor are coming before the great white city and they are just giving them a beating. And all hope looks lost. They've lost the first over. They've retreated back. Gandalf is there and it's like, fall back, fall back. And they just, everything seems lost. And then suddenly there's a noise and over the hill comes the riders of Rohan, the Rohirrim. And there are thousands of them lined up kind of on their, on their horses and you've got what's it, the king there, and he's like, right, we're going to ride down. And they charge, and they roll down the field into the sides of the forces of Mordor, and, and the, the battle, the tide of battle turns in a moment. We have that moment here where everything is lost. John is weeping. What, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And he says, no, wait, there is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And both those um, phrases are Old Testament Old Testament imagery that has been brought into our New Testaments. And they both have a kind of um, the image of a conquering hero, a great messianic figure who would come and save his people, save Israel. And the first one we have is this phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob by Leah. We mentioned Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was busy. He had 12 sons. Um, and Leah was his first wife, and she had four boys, and she had, uh, was it Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, the fourth. And Jesus is, is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when we preach through the back end of Genesis, we got to the bit at the end of Genesis where a dying Jacob prophesies over his sons. And when he gets to Judah, does Reuben, Simeon, Levi, gets to Judah, he says this. He said, Judah is a lion's cub. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So what does this mean for the prophecy from Judah? And what does it mean in, the rev- in reference in Revelation? Well, Judah, it says, it says that the scepter will not pass from him. The scepter was a, ru- um, a sign of rulership, leadership, power, authority, kingship. And the line of Judah was prophesied way back there in Genesis would be the line where the king would come from. And not just earthly kings, but the king, the messianic king, the one who would come and save his people. So this one that would come from the line of Judah would be the great king. Who's in the line of Judah that we know? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is from that line. He is the one who would come. He is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. And actually, he is the great one. That's why he's the line of the tribe of Judah. I mean, the great kings came from that line. And I don't know if you've ever seen a lion up close and personal. Okay, most people don't survive from that, but if you had, I saw one in a zoo. There was a number of years ago when I was at the zoo with Melanie, before, way before we had kids, and we went to the locals, I think it was Colchester Zoo, and we were just wandering around seeing the animals. It's something we like to do kind of on time off, and we like to go and see, and the penguins and the meerkats are always funny and stuff. But whenever we go to the zoo, for me, my, the thing I love to see most are the big cats, uh, I find them just the most fascinating things. And we were wandering around this enclosure where they were thinking, oh, you know, which cats have they got here? Where should we go? And I kind of came around the corner. Um, and you know you have those enclosures they've got like a glass perspex sort of viewing place. Um, so you can see in, but the animal obviously can't get out. I walked around the corner and I came face to face with a full-grown male lion. Um, and because of the way the, the ground was, I was standing on the floor and the, 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 the enclosure was a little bit higher. He was, on, he was standing erect and he was looking and as I came around the corner, we were eye to eye. It was kind of like that. And he wasn't that far away from me as far as I kind of just came around and saw him. And he looked at me and he had this huge mane of kind of fur that sort of came all the way out and round. And he was staying there and he was utterly motionless looking at me. And the lions have those kind of golden eyes with the little black dots in the middle. And this thing looked at me and I looked at him. And I can tell you for a second or two, the only feeling I had was abject terror. This thing was colossal. And it looked at me and I just thought, there's not even a contest here. You, just, you could just kill me in a moment. You've got claws on your paws. You've got teeth. Just your sheer size could just break me just by leaping at me, pinning me. would probably crack my chest. You are that big and that powerful and that mighty. And I genuinely was afraid. And when you get the fear, you get the adrenaline rush. And you suddenly get that spike and that flush. And it was kind of the fight or flight mentality hit me and it was almost like well fight's no option the only other thing I've got is to run and I did take that involuntary step back just just because I was I was afraid and then it suddenly reminded me oh thank you Jesus for thick perfect glass that actually you can't get me you can't but it's there and then this little kid walked around the corner it wasn't one of ours just a child wandering aimlessly in the zoo and you could tell the lion saw me and then looked at the kid and I instinctively went like this with the child 
It's like, just why behind me? I'd like I can save you, but thank you for the glass anyway that keeps us... And this thing was just terrifying. And this image of a lion is something of power and authority and strength. And it is awesome to behold. I'd love to see one in the wild one day from a really long distance through a lens. But that would be fascinating as well. And so Jesus represents, saying he's a lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the king. He is the one who's been prophesied right from the beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, you've got the bad news of the sin, but actually it talks about there that one would come even there and crush the head of the serpent. And all the way through the Bible, there's these, these kind of words, whispers sometimes. Sometimes it's loud, sometimes it's quiet. One is coming, one is coming, and Jesus is that one, and he is going to be that lion. He is the one who has all the power and all authority. But because he's also from the tribe of Judah, that means he's human as well. That means his ancestry, his lineage, humanly speaking, can be traced back. He's a human, as well as being one of great power and authority, he is one who has a very clear human lineage as well and so actually he's not just something beyond us he's actually something that's very much rooted in our history he can be traced back his his father his grandfather all the way back um, to Abraham and the second thing it says there is the root of David this image comes from Isaiah um, chapter 11 now David was one of the greatest kings of Israel an ancestor of Jesus he was a mighty warrior you'll know him from he killed Goliath that great kind of when he was young and he killed this giant of a man with the sling. But beyond that, he did many, he fought many, many battles. And he was just, he was it. He was rock hard in terms of fighting and destroying God's enemies. Um, he, so he was powerful in battle and mighty. But also he wrote the Psalms, many of the Psalms that we read in our Bible. So there was a, a tender heart to him as well written some of God's holy word, but also we find he's described as a man after God's own heart. And for the people of Israel, he was kind of their guy, their king. He was the one they looked to, King David, from their history. But from his line, it was promised one would come from that line who would be a Messiah. And when Jesus was born, it says in Luke 1, he will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So there's that linking back to David. But the interesting thing about the, what the point the author's trying to make is, he says he's the root of David. Now if we ever just think about this, if you go to the prophecy in Isaiah, it talks about the branch coming out from David and bearing fruit, this kind of coming after David, this other one coming that will be greater. And if I know my gardening, kind of when you, you, know, you plant a seed, puts down roots, it grows a stem, then it grows a branch, then it grows a fruit. It kind of goes in that order. But what the author's saying is actually he's the root of David. So what does this mean? Well, it actually means the one who was going to come after David was also there before him. The great one who was going to come after David, the one who's in David's line, the one who's going to be that great king that's going to save his people, was also there before him. It's making a very clear statement about who this Jesus is. Jesus isn't just the great one who's going to come. He's the one who was there in the first place. He was the one who was there at the beginning. He is the eternal God the Son. He's the one who's always been from eternity past, working this plan out, putting this plan in place. He's not just one to come after who just appeared in human history. Oh, you needed a saviour. Here I am. He's been the one who's been there from the beginning, working this all forward. The one who was before David is the one who comes 
Um, sorry, the one who was after David is the one who was there before him, and thus is greater than David. If you look at some of the bits of Jesus, he even makes that point to the scribes and the Pharisees when they're challenging him. Let you look at the Psalms, David, the way David describes him. He was there. So in Jesus, what do we have? We have the one true king, the one who has all the power and authority over everything. We also have one who is both fully man from the line of Judah, but also fully God because he was from the root of David. He was there in the beginning. He was there before it all began. And as a result, he is the only one who is worthy. He is the only one who is worthy to inaugurate this plan, to execute this plan. He's the only one who can represent God to man fully, but also represent man to God fully and completely. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And he's the only one who can complete God's plan. He's the only one who can work it out. He's the only one who can bring the salvation that we need to save us. So what does this mean for us? A few things to finish and we'll land. Okay, four things I want to look at just to bring us into. What does this mean that Jesus is the lion, that he is the king, that he is the one who is ruling and reigning over everything? Well, the first thing, it brings great security to us. Great security to us. If you're a believer here, You know who's in charge. You know who's in charge. You know personally who is in charge of everything and everything that's going on. When we look at the world around us and people are losing their head over this thing and that thing, ultimately we know who's in charge. We also know what's going to happen at the end. We know where it's heading. We know nothing is outside of his control. Nothing outside his control. God's plan has begun. Jesus is the only one who can execute it. He is the one who's going to fulfill it and bring it to completion, which means whatever you find yourself in now, whatever you are facing, whatever situation is pounding down on you, the winds and the waves are blowing, the storm is crashing on your door, and you're thinking, what is going on? You know the one who rules and reigns over that. You know the one who commands the winds and the waves. You are the one who has all power and all authority. God has a people and a plan for that people and you are part of it. If you're a believer here and you know as I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm following him, you are part of that plan and we know that plan has a direction. We know that plan has a destination. We know that plan is a complete and full plan and it is in the hands of one who has all power and all authority. So we know where it's going. So whatever uncertainty you face at life now, whatever you're thinking, the worries, the stresses of the world, ultimately you know God is in control. And he says he will ultimately work all things out for our good and his glory. And so whatever's facing, whatever's coming, you know that ultimately God is going to work it all out. Work it all out for his good. For your good and his glory. Number two, hope. Hope. Everything will ultimately end up with God. God wins. That's kind of, you can sum up the end of the Bible. He wins. He wins. Even when we go through life now and we face defeat and we face troubles and we trace trials, we have a hope for that future. When things are going wrong, when you know, things aren't working out, when relationships are breaking down, when we are, find ourselves on the end of unjust actions, vindictive bosses or families, people say evil things about us, people say nasty things about us, people break down, you face sickness and pain and strife and trouble, we have a hope one day that that will all be gone. 
This life is not all there is. We read the end bit in Revelation. What does it say? There's going to be no more crying or suffering or pain or tears. Because that old order will one day pass away. And we have a hope. Not an earthly hope that's built on, you know, will it, won't it. I hope Brexit works out for us. You know, I hope Villa get promoted. You know, some are more hopeful than others. But, you know, all these kind of things. But we have a hope that is sure and steadfast and, and cannot be rocked and cannot be broken. And whatever, whatever's going on, we can look for and thinking that will happen. One day, we will see Jesus face to face. His glory will cover all the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Christ the Lord. There will be a people made up of every tribe and every people and every nation. And they will worship before the throne for eternity. God is going to do that. And we also have great hope in terms of his mission and his plan. Here's something worth writing down. There is absolutely no one too far away from God for him to save. Absolutely no one. We can have hope that God's plan, which is written in that scroll, will come to pass. He's not going to miss out on anything. What he's planned, what he's talked about come to pass, there's no one who is outside of his control or outside of his authority, outside of his responsibility. There's people you've been praying for, you've been longing for, saying, God, save them. Keep going. We have a hope in God that he can save anybody. And we're to respond and we're to pray and we're to look for that. He can turn any situation around. Any situation. Whatever you're facing now, there is a hope that God can work it for good. The third thing, boldness. A lion goes with you wherever you go. Think about what that would be like, really. You go to work tomorrow, and you know the boss or someone's going to give you a bit of grease. Imagine if a lion went with you. Just me and the lion, just standing here. And the boss comes to give you the the aggro, the grief or something, and you just sort of stand and nestle into the mane. Okay, just give it to me. And the lion just looks at them. What would that be like? How would that change how you respond to a situation? How would you know, how would you respond to a situation if you know that what's behind you is the force of heaven arrayed out there and there is a king who is with you? That would change everything, wouldn't it? And the bottom line is we've been called by this king and we've been sent out by this king and he said, Jesus says, go in my name. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you, go. Which the great news means, when you've got the authority of the king behind you, you can't fail. You can't fail. You cannot fail. Because he has put his plan into motion. He's worked out. Which gives you great confidence and great boldness to go into whatever situation you are and do whatever he asks you to do. To show love to the unlovely, to serve the poor, the needy, the broken. To turn your cheek in the face of opposition. And pray for those who say vindictive things about you. We've been called to do that because we have a lion on our side and his purposes cannot fail. His kingdom is going to come on this earth. People will be saved. People will return. People will repent of their sins. And we have great power and authority. Even the word we preach is not our words. They're his words. The word of God has power and authority to change lives. And when we proclaim that, when we live that out, when we demonstrate that, it will have an effect on people. And we are not to shy away from being kind of 
you know, oops about that. We are to show in love and humility, this is the word of God into this situation. This is what he's calling us to do. To proclaim to our friends, proclaim to our children, our workmates, to demonstrate something knowing that actually we can't fail because we have a lion who is with us every day. Maybe you want to pray in the morning. Maybe before you go home today, we'll pray. Tomorrow morning when you get up and you pray, God, fill me with your spirit. You know, let me know your presence here. Just think about that. I've got a lion who goes with me today. Whatever's happening, whatever I face, when I have to face down the kids, <laughs> it's me and the lion. And we're going to do this. When I've got to go to work, when I've got to face that difficult situation, you know, a fractious relationship, God, you are with me working your purposes out. And the last one, he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of our praise. There's no one else. The voice went out across the entire cosmos, the angel. Who alone is worthy? Silence came back and then there was one. Jesus on his throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one true king over heaven and earth. The one who rules and reigns with authority. The one who has the power over death and Hades. The one who heals the sick, raises the dead, transforms lives. I'm reading through the Gospels at the moment in Matthew. And I just, I'm struck again of the way Jesus can just transform lives by speaking works into it. He's that one. And one of the, do you know what the best story of a transformed life is? Your best story of a transformed life is yours. There are great ones in the Bible. We read them, we love them, we proclaim them, we talk about them. Actually, I think the best one for you is yours. God changed my life. And out of that, we praise him and say, thank you, God. When I was a sinner, when I was far from you, when I was lost and broken, you saved me. Now I stand before you righteous and holy. We don't deserve that, but we've received that. I can come boldly before your presence, it says. We saw that in Hebrews. You are my father now. I'm not an estranged child. I've come back into your family. I've been adopted. God, you are amazing. You have saved me. You've removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. The, the devil has no way to accuse me anymore because I'm now free. That sin has been broken. Those lies have been taken from me. I am your child and I want to praise you for all eternity. That's great news. Do you want to stand up? And we're going to finish. I'm going to pray. The band are going to lead us in some time to respond. So we can pick up some of the things that God's been saying to us through this. Maybe you want to just close your eyes. Lord God, I want to thank you that you alone are worthy. You are the only one worthy on heaven and earth to open that scroll, to execute that plan of salvation. You are the one who's always been. You were there in the beginning. And you are the one who will always be. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are that line of the tribe of Judah, the one with all power and all authority, Lord Jesus, who roars over his creation who controls everything. You are the sovereign God, mighty and ruling. There is nothing outside of your control. Nothing catches you out. Nothing catches you off guard. Nothing happens without your authority. 
Lord Jesus, and we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord God, we thank you for the security that brings us as believers, that whatever we're going to be rolling into this week, whatever we know is coming, Lord, we know that you are ruling and reigning over that. We thank you for the great hope that that brings us, that you have a plan and a purpose, and we know the end, that ultimately it will bring you glory and it will do us good as we grow and learn more about you through it. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the boldness you give us by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, now please fill us with strength and boldness to live the life you've called us to. To face down the fears and the, you know, the things that concern us and things that would make us shy away and doubt. Lord God, thank you that you are the lion who goes with us wherever we go. <laughs> and Lord God, we want to say you alone are worthy. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the mighty God, the Holy One. We praise you. We worship you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you that you've saved us. You've turned us around. You've forgiven our sins. You've called what is unlovely as lovely. You've made us righteous and holy before you that we can come boldly into your presence anytime, anywhere and make demands on your mercy and your grace. You said, come to me, come to me, come to me. If you're weary, heady laden, come to me. If you're feeling up for a fight, come to me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for that. You are a wonderful, amazing God. Lord Jesus, and we praise you and we worship you. God's people said,